Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hi there. This is Vivian Host from the Red Bull Music Academy and Red Bull Radio, and this is Couch Wisdom. Normally, this podcast presents the best of the Red Bull Music Academy's lecture archive, but we're doing a little something different for this episode. I'm the host of Peak Time, Red Bull Radio's daily new music show that airs every weekday from noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. On Peak Time, we recently had a surprise visit from 10 Tricks Point Never, who dropped in to talk about his forthcoming album, Age Of, which comes out June 1st on Warp Records, and also Myriad, the dystopian four-part sci-fi opera that he has created to go with Age Of, a one-of-a-kind show which premieres on May 22nd as part of the Red Bull Music Festival in New York City. One of Tricks Point Never, whose real name is Dan Lopatin, is one of the most exciting artists working in electronic music today. Over the course of more than eight albums, he's tested the boundaries of MIDI, created disruptive meditations on replication and arpeggiation, reality and hyperreality, and mortality, both of humans and machines. Quite simply, Dan has made some of the most beautiful and melancholy computer music around, whether by himself, as Chuck Person, or as half of Ford and Lopatin, or with any of his many collaborators, which include among them Anoni, David Byrne, FKA Twigs, and Good Times directors the Safdie brothers. In this interview, we covered epochs and history, Rabelais, artificial intelligences, the egg-shaped house in Massachusetts where parts of Age Of were conceived, and why James Blake told him to shut up. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the interview. But for now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Right now, I am here with Dan Lopatin, a.k.a. One of Tricks Point cool. Never. Um, okay, so you just dropped a lot of big news today about your forthcoming record, yeah. Age Of. So uh, you started this record in 2016, and you said that you were uh, kind of working on it here and there while you were doing other stuff. How did the record change over the time that you were working on it? Well, I think it became more and more personal, but it it started in pieces and a lot of the material were sketches for other projects I was working on. So there's a twig sketch that turned into a piece of music called Ray Cats. There's an Usher sketch that turned into a piece called The Station. And um, there's bits and pieces that were like the bones and the DNA of of the of hopelessness of the Unhony record. I mean, there's a lot of weird uh, germs from all over the place that, that, that I eventually gathered and took with me to this house in Massachusetts where I posted up for a bit uh, last summer and um, started working it out and sort of got got uh, up close and personal with, with, with these ideas and we're trying to see where, how they could uh, enmesh and, and sit next to each other on a record. Is it true that that house had no right angles in it? It really did. I mean, there was some, there were some, but not really. I mean, this was like a heavily contoured kind of weird alien egg oval shape with a lot of glass and then this very intense kind of a white concrete dome um, that um, uh, was a, a ma- it was just like hanging out in a spaceship. But during the day, it was it was fun. But at night, it was actually like severely creepy because of all the obvious things I didn't consider when going out there, which is you're alone, you're in like on a hill in the burb, surrounded by houses that look nothing like this thing. 
you feel totally trapped and judged by all the other uh, houses because you're sitting in this glass egg that they can peer into. So you unwittingly put yourself in the straw dogs a sci-fi horror movie. Yeah, and I was really going out there to do that cliche thing that bands do, you know, where they're like, I'm going to go to the woods to chill and like commune with nature and make a make some kind of, you know, deeply pastoral work or whatever. And then I came out there, I was like, I don't know, I'm just going to Shaw's supermarket every day and, <laughs> you know, whatever else is going on in this town. <laughs> the mundanity of the burbs. For sure. Um, so when did you come out with the idea of Age Of? Like, when did that title come to you and what sort of things is it inspired by? I mean, Age of Enlightenment, Age of Reason. I like that if I sipped, well, my f- very good friend, dear friend, uh, Arthur Ashen, Otranuvu, he, he had a record with with Age Of in the title. But the thing is that what I was really into was this idea that if you had no punchline to that sentence, it became like a way more cosmic. It became really strange. And it became about the idea of putting things in these gigantic containers of thought of uh, 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 concretizing, the idea of concretizing history or time is much more interesting than actually defining it as some age, you know? And what was funny is when I saw that Jim Shaw painting that's on the cover of the album, saw it at um, at uh, Metro Pictures in New York, and I didn't know what the title was, but I was told sometime later that it was called The Great What's It, which is literally a synonym, in my opinion, for age of it's like this big nothing and um it uh just made me laugh pretty much it just makes me it just feels it it feels more truthful than actually saying what what age we're in so how does that relate back to the music i mean is this the music of of the undefined or the of the like trying to define something but not being able to or what where does the music relate to that title yeah, I think in a sense it does because it's kind of um there's a lot of kind of historically referenced stuff going on in it. A lot of it having to do with the West and and music of the West that it, that was championed in history as being great that sounds can sound um uh, farcically um awkward looking back at it. Or you know, all of these all of these things are subject to change. That's all I'm really saying. So the Renaissance is interesting on some levels, but it's also a, a, it's a giant spaceship of nightmares by you, you know uh, uh, the ruling class, and that's kind of what history is, right? It's like uh, written a specific way, it's articulated a specific way, and uh, it gets things. Gets all of the complexity, all of the weird grit, all of the sort of scatological, fucked up stuff happening on the margins of 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 life. Wrong. It doesn't ever really include it, and um, and uh, it's sad. But it's also, uh, yeah, it's just amusing to me all this stuff. How how wrong we are about things in retrospect, basically. Yeah, I got to thank you because uh, looking at your art for your Myriad show and the Age of Cover Art and then starting to think of 
about the age of reason and the age of enlightenment and then romanticism and how all of these things were just a reaction to something else. Like after romanticism, you get realism because people are tired of being unrealistic. So they got to go all the way to the opposite end. Basically, I've spent the whole morning like I feel really smart now. Yeah, you were <laughs> looking at that whole arc of modernity, right? Well, yeah, it's it's, it's sort of interesting to think about those things as not being able to be contained, right? Because as time kind of augments them, they change. Not to get too deep, but uh, it's 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 interesting musically because you can kind of take those ideas and say, well, if those definitions change over time, like sound should probably change over time too. And how can we create a picture of of like history being a a big fucking lie? with a harpsichord or whatever. So that's sort of part of what's going on, but there's other things. There's, it was just a funny time, too. I remember at some point, like, um, a year ago or something, me and my friend James were like, oh, let's read Steve Bannon's favorite book. Let's see what... Because uh, it was in the news all the time. Steve Bannon's favorite book, The Fourth Turning. And it's this uh, grotesque kind of a pseudo-socio-scientific uh, um, book about epochs about about how things go and it's really like this author this authoritarian kind of delivery of well you know every hundred years something's got to change and it happens on this schedule and here's his dynastic cycles and here's why this generation ha has to behave this way and the sort of nested generations behaving in these different ways and it's so sure of itself and it would just made us laugh we just crack up reading this thing because it was it, it seemed to us like something you would do if you were doing a um, like farce of a history teacher and not actual history. And so I think I just really got got into it that way. Okay, so I've I've been very intrigued by uh, by the artwork for Myriad, which is a show that you're putting on with the Red Bull Music Festival in New York, uh, May 22nd through May 24th. And it is not merely a show, but it is a four part epochal song cycle performance uh, at the Armory here in New York City in the Drill Hall, which is a gigantic room. But anyway, I'm obsessed with this artwork that you've created with David Rudnick. And in this artwork, it's an axis, if you will. Uh, you could also say it's a meme. I'm not really sure. There's four parts, and um, there's these amazing drawings, and I think that they come from uh, Francois Rabelais and his... Uh, Yes. I don't I don't know. I don't know what a pentology is, but the life of Gargantua and of Pantagruel. He had this like farcical uh work about like, some grotesque giants. Can yes. you can just tell me more okay, about so the drawings? Just really briefly, or so like I know it's like um the early afternoon people are like, dude, I'm trying to like live my life, not go to sleep. But <laughs> we'll talk about memes in a minute. All right. Memes aside, uh Rabelais is this incredible sixteenth century um uh writer. And he writes a story of these giants, um, and they're just kind of these hungry giants, but they're hungry in two ways. Like, A, they're just decadent. They're hedons, but they're also really, really interested in, like, understanding the universe in a way. And their way to understand it is basically by being, like, insane and just interacting with everything and everyone and consuming everything and everyone. And so it's kind of like that idea of a myriad is 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 very alive in these characters because they're kind of they're thirsty for they're thirsty for a complete understanding of 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 what's going on which is kind of amusing but the real thing that that I, I get from these 
characters is um, um, was actually came, David pointed out this essay to me by Rus- Soviet era Russian uh, literary critic who basically said, okay, in this story, what's really happening is that Rabelais is pointing out during a very uh, intense period of time where you have kings and you have the church and you have all of these really contained uh, uh, superstructures of power and, and, and order. You have a book that basically is is really putting the focus on like what he called the laughter in the marketplace, like people just like telling fart jokes and like being crazy and like hanging out and whispering secrets to each other. And that is to me, the internet, that's exactly what's going on. And so when your shitty ass Twitter explore thing is filled with Buzzfeed articles and everything else, you're not really understanding what's happening. You're getting a very specific, very curated view of the, of the internet. The, the real shit that's happening is actually probably what reveals the most about us as a society. So this thing about the myriad, this show is a, um, it's a kind of like a sci-fi scenario in which there's this advanced species, kind of like the one in 2001, but instead of bequeathing an ape with the ability to evolve and eventually become, um, super intelligent, like they are, they do the opposite. They just want to hang out and loiter and dream about us all day because we're stupid and we didn't have the answers to anything. So they their dream of us is based on our com- total sum output of everything we ever like put on the internet, you know, all of our recorded medias. And so they tabulate all of that stuff. They take an average and it's just this crazy ass opera thing, quasi opera. And that's what you'll see, you know, at the armor, you'll see the actual kind of the the cycle of of human stupidity as told in these four chapters. It's so interesting to think about this historical context, because like you said, a lot of this, you know, chatter that Rabelais might have been writing about, this like grotesque street chatter, you know, that was definitely going on in the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and all time as, you know, like the same thing like with memes and BuzzFeed articles, like maybe that gets written out of history. Right. Yeah. Immediately, it gets deprioritized to like just. But I would imagine that an omniscient, uh, an an AI that was really kind of like um, doing a good job of, uh, of comprehending some lost society or some lost civilization, they would definitely want to inspect that stuff first, and not maybe a bunch of books written by, you know, arrogant liars. <laughs> right. I mean, it's probably more telling about the culture, like what, yeah. what memes we're consuming and what dumb videos on YouTube and stuff. So at what point did you conceive of the show Myriad that accompanies this record? Was it there from the beginning or did it kind of take shape over the making of the record? Um, It was just this natural kind of bouncing. I, I, it's not very interesting. It was kind of like the album came out intuitively and and only once it was done did I really think, oh, you could really formalize this into like this strange kind of quasi-theatrical thing. And it had a lot to do with these epochs. So that those that four-part story that happens in the show uh, is based around this idea that there's four epochs. There's this sort of cycle. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a farce of a parable. 
and it just goes like this. The first one's called Echo. This is like, you know, creatures without language show up on the scene. They want to communicate, but they can't. So they are just suspended in this ether, and everything just echoes forever. But then eventually— Go play Echo the Dolphin on Sega Genesis and Mega Drive. Yes, and note, notice the swiftness and lightness of a fish. That is what that is what we were at one at one point. But then we become these land, uh, these land based creatures that are really tethered to the earth. So then the next epoch would be harvest, and this is when we have tools and we kind of uh, it's a kind of a quasi agrarian age where we're taking from the earth, but we're also giving back. And there's this kind of equipoise. There's a sort of like farce of idyllic kind of relationship between. Uh, he, uh, the humanity and nature. And then things get out of control. That's called the Age of Excess. That's the third epo- epoch. That's the one that I currently think we're in now. But I actually think we're on the cusp, the excess bondage cusp, right right before things get really hairy, which would be the fourth epoch. is called bondage. And that's when things have gotten so inflated and so um, uh, and so overpopulated and so... Um, egregiously uh, built up that there's nowhere else to go. So um, you're just stuck. You can't move. And then eventually the bubble bursts and you do it again and again and again. So this is just, uh, um, you know, a little, a kind of a, a TV trope of a, of, a, of a parable, almost like a biblical kind of thing. And so the album also follows this order of moving through these ages from echo to bondage? It would have if if it weren't for James Blake being like, shut the fuck up with your <laughs> shit. Like, save that for your cute little opera. This is an album. And there, so there were choices that were made on the album that were didn't really line up with that logic. Some of it does. There's There's traces of me trying to do that and then traces of James being like, no. So what, I mean, what was James's involvement in the record? He it's, wasn't evolved enough, involved enough to be able to be like, shut up. Oh, definitely. Well, at first, at first I did, had no idea. I was, I, I basically had reached a kind of like an impasse and I had a record and I had a very, and it was even in a sense, it had been kind of mixed. It sounded to me like uh, it was really close to being finished. And then I started thinking about mix engineers because I, uh, you do that kind of thing when you reach a certain point. And then uh, I was like, I don't know if I want to, I, I don't know if I necessarily want to do this with a, a highly technical person, maybe someone that's a little bit more on the musical side. And then on a whim, I reached out to James, um, actually through my friend Roddy, who's also a producer. And um, and I, I was like, James, check out these tunes. This is my new record. Uh, I want to finish it but I want to finish it with a with a musician, a producer, not necessarily an engineer. What do you think? Because he'd mix stuff. Um, um, and he got back to me like within a, a day or two and said I can start on Monday. Like there was an excitement and a natural kind of uh, flow that was happening. So we just started zipping stuff back and forth and working that way. And then I went out to L.A. and we were, you know, a lot of late nights and kind of deconstructing uh, the songs and thinking about what made them really tick and how to make them tick even more. And he, I mean, the, he was he was involved. He was involved. I, he's like uh, a confidant on the record. So I know that you've been interested across all of the stuff that you've done in melody and in pop, but not necessarily using like doing what pop people do. I mean, using 
the things about pop that make it so great and like people love it so much, but not necessarily using the structure that people have established or the, the kind of cliches people have established in pop. Like how did that, how were you thinking about that in terms of this record? I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things going on. You're singing in yeah. a way where people can hear you and not yeah. necessarily f- through Vocaloid or whatever. Right. Through Vocaloid. And then there's like, it starts with this really great, I don't know if it's medieval or Baroque or what it is like these uh, uh, harpsichord. Yeah. They're harpsichords. Everything on the record uh, with the exception of Eli Kessler's drum set is uh, a software emulation of some instrument. So there's that, but uh, that's a really interesting question. I think, do you, obviously you heard the, the Charlie XCX mixtape that came out a while ago, um, a couple months ago. I think that's peak, like doing pop, but thinking about structure in absolutely futuristic ways. I think Alex Cook and, 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 and for the most part, the entire PC, PC music, music crowd yeah. is, um, they're very serious about it. And they're like, uh, to me, they're actually pop. They're real. They're in the world of pop, working with pop musicians, successfully making stuff that's both extremely glossy in that way that like is appealing, that that titillates people, but is also secretly like really interesting uh, arrangement-wise. I think I'm a little different. And it might be like because of um, my generation, my influences or whatever. But to me, Age of sounds like, uh, I, I think of 70s records. I think it's sort of the, the golden kind of like, I think of like Laurel Canyon folk stuff. I think of Todd Rundgren. I think of California a lot. I think of um, like even Stevie Wonder's, you know, post Barry Gordy records where he's playing all the parts and it's kind of there. It's something's a little slippery. Something's a little weird about it, but it's still completely... Uh, together. <clears throat> and I think about those types of records as sort of um, mid-band, golden mid-band records. You know, the thing in pop music that I cannot totally at the moment uh, get behind because I'm a little fatigued by it is that the, the, mid, the mids are totally missing, that it's all subs and a, and, and a, and a personality identity. Uh, and a sub, and then something um, just token in between. So I'm really on this record. I'm just kind of uh, like inverting that a little bit. That's what I like. But also I think that it, when I heard the Charlie XCX record, I really did understand that for the first time maybe that there was still stuff you could do with that old school relationship uh, or that new school pop relationship that 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 deals with form effectively. So. Yeah, Kudos it's interesting. You kind of taken another tack on it. I feel like they're taking the candy, the digital candy elements and like the sheen of pop music and just overblowing it. It's like a Jeff Koons. Like yeah, 100% went, Jeff Koons. Went way big with it. And you're looking at pop from the, I guess, the more traditional what you think about like Pet Sounds or Stevie Wonder or like this. Yeah, this sort of the ambition of somebody who's just awoken to the sound on sound rea- that's gotten free. Like there's nothing more interesting to me than those records that Stevie Wonder makes after he gets out from from his prison of a of a record contract and he's suddenly doing everything and making these insanely symphonic but totally beautiful and and and, and comprehensible and down to earth songs. Um 
there's nothing better than that to me because it's it's it, there's something personal about it. There's something that 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 the artist is giving away. Like you have to give something away, and a lot of this a time in pop music, I feel like it's kind of trying to give something away, or it's purposely designed to feel like you're getting insight into someone's. But it's 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 a little. It's just too perfect. There's not. It's not slippery enough for me. There's a lot, I mean, we've talked a lot about sort of these like almost grandiose themes, you know, the age of, of this, and then we go into the harvest and like, you know, this is like sci-fi elements, but like, are you giving away a lot personally of yourself on this record? I think so. I think there's stuff that if you pay attention, it's, it, they seem like big ideas, but they're really just, that's the looking glass, but if you just settle down, settle into it, settle down into it, you'll 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 pick up on all kinds of very personal things that I'm trying to share. Um, especially, it, definitely more than than in the past. I would say. I mean, even the decision, like a, a production decision, not to use like a vocal synth per se, um, for me, meant eliminating that question in your mind, uh, the, in the mind of the audience, of like, oh, but why did he use this? Is this some kind of criticism or is it funny or is it should I take it serious or what I just don't want those questions so in a way uh like the only reason autotune was used on the record is because my pitch is terrible like I'm not a, I'm a I'm a singer I'm a I, I would feel like much more comfortable saying that I'm a uh idea person a, a lyricist a, mel a, a melody person than I am a singer I, I I'm completely not so that's that was a solution to that. But what I'm trying to do is actually just give, create a paint a picture and and tell tell a little story about myself. So, so what can you tell us about the actual performance myriad? I mean, it's you hear song cycle, which you've used in the past too to refer to other albums, and you think about Bartok or Wagner's Ring Cycle. Uh, but when I was researching it, actually, song cycle could just be could also be like if you dumb it down like concept album like you're supposed to listen to this take this thing as a whole work and not just the singles right i think so i think when you when you when you go to the show you're sitting down for like a night at the opera in the most like uh, scatological fucked up way like it doesn't totally make sense i call it vague i call it vague formalism what that means is like it's a sort of an idea that's that's that there's a there's a parametric aspect to it. There's connections that are drawn between themes and characters that reoccur, and there's a story about about um, about us, about humans, and there, it's set in space. And the the um, you sit down, and the armory will be essentially the cosmos, and the stage is Earth. And so, you know, you're kind of voyeuristically peering into the our entire history compressed into this hour of, uh, as I understand it to be not an actual history, but a, a, a messy one. So, so that's how it works. And then the, the songs from the album are performed, but in this epochal structure. So James uh, will finally see, hear the record as I intended it to be heard. Yeah, James. Well, the only question Fucking left James. is uh, what do we wear to this thing? Um, I would recommend wearing something comfortable. A Zentai suit, perhaps? I'm going to try to make it as uncomfortable for everybody as possible, so you just show up in whatever <laughs> makes you happy. Some, uh, uh, what is it called, a hair shirt? What do monks wear? A hair shirt. Oh, that would be nice. 
Yeah, let's try, let's try to get into that. So, you know, one thing occurred to me when I was, you know, kind of looking at the artwork and thinking about these ages and whatever, and then also thinking about, I don't know, digital detritus is that, you know, like memes and discarded software and emojis and clip art and all this stuff. Like yeah. it is the folk, it is the folk art or like the folk things of our time. It is. You know, it's of the people. There's no one more Francois Rabelais than John Raffman today. Who's John Raffman? John Raffman is a is an artist from Canada who's who's well aware of this this idea, this fact that you just laid out. That he, I think, he feels a personal responsibility to kind of to shine light on on the on on the sort of um, folkloric uh, practices, internet, digital digital folklore. Cool. Well, we'll yeah. have to check him out. Um, so in, in putting together a live performance, there's like a lot of elements to it. Um, there's a lot of elements that are not just performing the music, but whatever. And without giving anything away, what is one surreal uh, piece of putting together this show that you've, uh, that you've experienced? Well, the, the whole thing is, is pretty insane. I mean, we have 300-pound sculptures. We have... Um, theatrical lighting. We have inflatables that inflate in in media re- race, as it as it were, while it's happening. Um, there's all these things that are constantly. We're just testing for feasibility. Even a month out, we're like, can we do this? You know, there's all kinds of. I just wanted to be a, a, a like a Huesman symphony of of smells, but across all all of the senses so there's it's it's quite ridiculous when you look at it on paper and i'm sure red bull also agrees <laughs> and thank god for for them um letting me run wild with this but um it's everything about it is insane to be honest i don't know we're still trying to figure out if it can we can even pull out pull it off it sounds amazing this is this is like your Fitzcarraldo. yeah i'm trying to get this ship over the hill no doubt Hey, this is Vivian Host again. Thanks so much for listening to Couch Wisdom. I thought I would tell you a little something more about Red Bull Radio before you go. Red Bull Radio is a 24-hour linear broadcast available at redbullradio.com and via the Red Bull Radio app for iPhone and Android. The station features over 70 original shows taped in more than 40 countries, spanning every style of music and including everything from interviews with your favorite artists and in-depth theme shows to exclusive mixes and live broadcasts from clubs and festivals around the world. Red Bull Radio has an exciting roster of daily, weekly, and monthly shows hosted by the likes of Earl Sweatshirt, Dame Funk, Gerd Jansen, EMA, Awful Records, Chelsea Wolfe, Stephen O'Malley, Quantic, and the list goes on and on. My show, Peak Time, runs Monday through Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. It's your daily resource for everything interesting happening in the world of music. The best new tracks and music news, in-depth interviews with your favorite artists, and more on the stories shaping mainstream and underground music alike. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullradio.com. And if you like what you heard on this Couch Wisdom podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it. Consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening.